You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent bi-weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement and run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This episode is episode number three. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, Sally! Well... We are at number three, and we are getting some real nice feedback there. How do you like that? I think it's great. It means people listening to us. Yeah, I think it's good, and I think it's uh, very nice. We have been contacted by many different other podcasts that welcome us to the club, and that's really nice. We've got some some very nice uh, feedback from uh, Portugal, from the Portuguese Skeptics concept. Uh, they seem to be very happy that we are doing this. And uh, from many, many other people, we are getting the same reaction. Uh, but w- we've been picked up by such great podcasters, um, especially um, it, there seems to be an interest in our podcast in Australia. Uh, like, for example, I was interviewed by Kylie Sturgis from the Token Skeptic. And uh, she's she's an award-winning podcaster. Um, she got the the Occam Awards uh, twice, I think, and um, she was very great and supportive. Yeah, we we ended up agreeing that we are in this together, so we need to support one another because um, because the our goal is the same to to see more and more people with critical thinking six skills and we are trying to help with that and uh, whatever we can to um, do to help each other out we should do it and that was very nice of her so a big shout out to Kylie Sturgis thank you yeah and also from Australia we were interviewed by Richard Saunders from the Skeptic Zone so uh, if you're listening to the latest episode of Skeptic Zone you can listen to the three of us uh, speaking to him via Skype all the way down to Australia. Yeah, that that was an awesome experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also had um, some good feedback uh, from America. It's always good to have a perspective from another country. And it was about our true or false segment that we did last time. So the um, so, well, so-called false article was about the, uh, the storing information in your body without cyber modifications. And James Barron, who emailed us, uh, kindly pointed out that this uh, article could have been uh, interpreted either way, either true or false. And uh, um, he actually suggested very cleverly that um, the problem is that he can easily think of a way of, of storing information in the body without cyber modifications that have nothing to do with, with the article. For instance, you can tattoo a barcode onto your skin, mm. which is pretty clever. And um, I take the point. And um, when we do our future uh, true or false segments, we'll try to look at it from different perspectives and um, make sure that there is no way the false item can be true. Um, another email also came from America from Daniel Duncan, and um, he um, 
wrote to us about uh, the perspective on the um, taxing churches in America, um, which was, uh, again, another great um, sort of piece of information. Um, and he obviously had some more knowledge about it. Uh, and he said that uh, if we eliminate every belief system that was uh, shown to be man-made and outlandish, there would be no religion with taxes and status. And he was personally okay with that. And so are we, to be honest. Um, and there is one major reason um, that no IRS administration will try to prosecute those on the edges of um, respectability. Given the existing case law and the current makeup of uh, courts, the IRS has high probability of losing a challenge. And so this would set precedent that could remove even the, the uh, threat of legal action making the situation that much worse. So it's a bit of a uh, catch-22 in a way. So that that was also a great piece of feedback. Thanks for that, Daniel. Yeah, but of course we have to be aware that um, how much a precedent is is weighed in in a, a legal case of course is it depends on what the legal system is like um so so it is a big thing in the united states um and uh, and several other countries as well i i would like to point out that um we are very happy that we have so many listeners from across the pond it's absolutely mind-blowing um that we have a lot of listeners already from the United States and Canada and uh, Australia as well. I hope we'll we'll get more and more of 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 them. But what I would also like to point out, especially to our friends across Europe, is that guys, we have a lot of catching up to do in terms of subscribing uh, to the podcast, and w- we would like to to share information that are concerning Europe and European activities um, in the skeptical movement. And of course, we would need news from you um, in order to be able to do that. So if you could send us news along with your suggestions and ideas that have already been coming in, and we are very grateful for those as well, uh, regarding um, structural changes, what to put in, what to what to try to leave out, uh, we're gonna try and put everything into consideration. But please send us news and information about what's going on in your country in terms of the skeptical movement, skeptical activities, and. Uh, why not do this so make this a competition? Um, let's see how many European listeners we can get um, with an ever-growing number of uh, listeners from outside Europe. So, yeah, please um, subscribe to our podcast. Spread the word uh, um, amongst your European skeptic friends and non-European skeptic friends. Just everybody, really. Um, and you can email us to info at the ESP. And you can follow us on Twitter. And on Twitter, we are at espodcast underscore EU. Um, we've got a website, theesp.eu, and you can find us on Facebook, the European Skeptics Podcast. Let's run through the segments you can expect to hear on today's show. As usual, uh, we're kicking off with the regular part provided by Yelena and her commemoration of a famous person born on the 16th of December, somewhere in Europe. 
Then we're gonna shed some light on what skeptical events we have missed last month. Uh, I'm talking about November, of course. But hopefully some of the listeners will have attended at least one or two of those. So feel free to drop us a line if, if that is the case. Then, moving on to see what the biggest skeptical news in Europe are. Then we have two interviews lined up to do, uh, for today's show. The first is a bit longer, with uh, many things we covered with Michael Marshall from the Good Thinking Society. You may remember us mentioning on the last episode when we covered all those homeopathy-related news that we would try and interview Marsh. Uh, well, we managed and ended up talking about a lot of interesting things, not just homeopathy. So we hope you're looking forward to hearing that. After the first interview, uh, Yelena will help us find our way among logical fallacies once again. Uh, this time we'll see how to spot and avoid an argument from popularity. Then we're moving on to the second interview, introducing a new segment, uh, the one where we provide short interviews focusing on a certain issue, reporting from events, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, the first of those will be an interview I made with Martin Poulter, convener of the first ever Wikipedia Science Conference in London. Um, Martin has a cool profession. He's a Wikimedian in residence at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. How cool is that, hey, eh? Great. <laughs> this has been sitting in a box since September, so it was high time we ran that. Then uh, Pontus will tell us about someone who's been really wrong lately somewhere in Europe. I believe it was very close to you, Pontus. Mm -hmm. Um, looking forward to that. This time, uh, there is no true or false segment, as we thought it would make our episode too long for the listeners, so maybe another time, wait for that. Um, we're not necessarily skipping it uh, forever. We all hope that you are ready for the show, as the three of us definitely are, so enjoy. Let's see what's on in Europe. Um, first of all, uh, we had um, Hungary's 21st National Conference of Skeptics. It's been going on for a while, and the weird thing about this is that I attended most of them, almost from the beginning. Uh, not this one, though. It was on the 14th of November in Székesfehérvár, which happens to be my hometown, actually. But... Um, I was not lucky enough be, to, to be there. The other thing is that it was very lightly attended. It's um, kind of diminishing by the year. The, the, the number of people who are attending is, is um, fewer and fewer. But uh, some of the skeptics don't even consider it um, a skeptical conference anymore because of the topics that, that are usually covered. I've written about it on the website of CSI earlier this year, actually, uh, about the 20 years of Hungarian skepticism. So uh, you'll be able to check it out. Uh, we'll, we'll be referencing that on the show notes. But what topics were covered? First of all, um, it was one with the title Misconceptions in Education. Of course, everything was in Hungarian. So um, I'm giving a translation of the titles here. Uh, the other one was uh, Why is Physics So Hard to Grasp? Um, it's an interesting topic, uh, and I, I know the, the the lecturer quite well. He's a great physics physics teacher, 
and um, he's been um, giving talks like that uh, at, the, at those conferences uh, for many, many years and uh, very good talks. Interesting stuff. Internet and its hazards, fusion energy, exobiology and the history of space exploration. Those was, were the uh, main topics um, covered at the conference. There are other skeptical conferences uh, that are annual conferences in Hungary uh, that we will be able to report on uh, once we're there, mainly around February and, and March uh, when those are happening. The, the Portuguese skeptics, or CONCEPT, uh, arranged their third annual conference on the 21st of November. This time it was held in Porto, which is the second largest city in, in Portugal, and the theme was Denialism, when facts are rejected. If you know Portuguese, you can read all about it on their website, which is comcept.org, C-O-M-C-E-P-T dot O-R-G. Uh, they had five speakers that approached denialism from different angles. Their topics were evolution, the Holocaust, vaccine efficacy, climate change, and moon landings. All talks were given by prominent experts in each area, and there's a leaflet uh, that is free to download, and we will link to that. All the talks were recorded, and they will be published on YouTube and on Comcept's website in the near future. So I'm quite impressed by the Portuguese skeptics movement. It's fairly new, but it's moving forward in a very impressive way. So big congratulations to this successful event. Um, and another conference that took place in November was a second Skeptic Conference in Moscow uh, on the 28th and the 29th of November. Um, it was very successful last year, and so the guys put it up again this year. Um, it had few great speakers on, um, and some of the um, things that were discussed and the themes of the conferences were... Um, for example, uh, there was a talk about the good food for clever people, um, the what use is philosophy, um, how to fight the pseudoscience, um, uh, about the historical science. Uh, there was a talk um, and also they talked about the Goudini uh, Prize, which uh, offers one million rubles to anybody who can uh, prove the paranormal abilities. It's a very similar thing to uh, uh, the one in America the, the, that GRF Foundation runs and it offers one million dollars. So the uh, conference also uh, included some entertainment, light entertainment afterwards, um, and I read up about it. They had uh, games after the main talks, one of which was called Fallacy Mania. Uh, apparently it's a game that trains the ability to recognize the false ar arguments, which is great, I think. Um, great great training, mm. training for skeptics. Yeah. Um, the event was free which is absolutely fantastic, you know. It uh, obviously took a lot of volunteers, but obviously they accepted donations and support from the attendees. And as far as I know, the conference was attended by over 200 people, um, and I was told that uh, there will be another one next year. So, Yelena, tell us about a person um, whose, whose life achievements are relevant to skepticism or skeptics themselves and was born on this continent uh, on the very day of the release of this episode that is the 16th of December. Alrighty, so 
Um, on the 16th of December, 1917, um, Arthur C. Clarke was born. Um, and yes. he is a British Sri Lankan scientist, science fiction writer. Now, his life's achievements are as long as two of my arms, never mind one arm. Um, he did a lot of great work. Um, and yes, yeah, so he was born in Minehead, Somerset, England. He uh, was a lifelong proponent of space travel. And in 1934, while still a teenager, he joined the British Interplanetary Society. And then in 1945, he proposed a satellite communication system, an idea which won him the Franklin Institute Stuart Ballantyne Medal in 63 and other honors. He was, he was a science writer and he wrote dozens of books, many essays, published in, uh, in various popular magazines. Now, of course, 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, Clark's most famous work, uh, was extended well beyond the 1968 movie as the Space Odyssey series. And in 1982, Clark wrote a sequel to 2001 titled 2010 Odyssey 2, um, which was made into a film in 1984. In 1986, Clark provided a grant to fund the prize money uh, for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. And this award was given to anybody who was uh, a best science fiction novel publisher in a given year in the United Kingdom. Initially, it was £1,000 and then it was increased to £2,000, etc. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke moved to uh, Sri Lanka and spent most of his life there, really, scuba diving. He wrote many books, novels, produced a show, and won, won many awards and honours, and he was even knighted. So yes, he lived a very full life and um, left a great legacy to all of us. Um, that's who we're celebrating today, Arthur C. Clarke. Great! Yeah, and you know, you know what the music is? That that movie made really famous among science enthusiasts and science fiction enthusiasts. Also, Spracht Zarathustra. Yeah, that's that's correct by Richard Strauss. It it somehow came became a kind of a symbol to 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 the movie itself. Yeah, and to science fiction in general. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's move on to what's new in Europe. Um, all right, so this week um, I've got the um, article from the Tech Insider, and this article talks about 10 smartest countries in the world when it comes to science. And some of those countries are European countries. Yay! Mm. Go Europe! Oh, yeah. So, yeah, if you, if we were, we are to resolve the biggest problems of our time, from climate change to food security to nuclear non proliferation, we're going to need more scientists and we need to educate more scientists and uh, provide good education. So who are those 10 countries who made it to top 10? So number 10 is Portugal. Portugal has 25% of its students that graduated with a STEM degree. Now the STEM degree stands for science, technology, engineering or math. Portugal has also got the highest percentage of the doctorate holders that work in education of all 40 countries surveyed, so it's 72%. Um, move on to number nine. Uh, number nine is Austria, 25%, um, has the second highest number of working age PhDs. 
which with uh, 6.7 female and 9.1 male doctorate holders per a thousand people. Number eight, Mexico uh, moved up from 24% in 2002 to 25% in 2012, um, despite the government abolishing tax breaks for business investments in research and development. And number seven, Estonia. Ah, this is the neighbor country. Uh, well, my neighbor, my ex neighbor country, because I'm from Latvia. <laughs> um, Estonia, um, has 26%, um, of the graduates and the one of the highest percentages of female STEM uh, graduates at 41% in 2012. So that's always good. The sci, the scientific field is, is very heavily male dominated. So it's great that there are a lot of female scientists graduating in Estonia. Go Estonia. Number six, Greece spent only 0.08% of its GDP on research in 2013. It's a tiny, tiny percentage, uh, which was one of the lowest reported among developed countries. And in my, I might explain why its STEM degrees rate dropped from 28% in 2002 to 26 in 2012, but it's still on number six. So they're doing pretty good still. Um, in France, um, there's 27% of the uh, STEM graduates and most researchers are employed by industry rather than government or universities. Number four, Finland, with 28% of STEM graduates, um, publishes more research about medicine than in any other field. So good research in medicine is always um, great news for us um, and for people who suffer from various diseases. Um, number three, Sweden. Yay. Hooray Sweden, yeah. 28% of uh, STEM graduates. Um, it's just behind Norway for most computer use at work, mm. including for applications like programming. And uh, over three quarters of workers use computers at their jobs. I, I thought that's kind of the case in most, well, developed countries. I don't know. It seems like definitely. I I use four or five computers at my work, so I, I don't. Yeah, know. I know. Oh, so, so, yeah, <laughs> in my my work. Nice, but yeah, um, number two Germany with thirty one percent of STEM graduates, um, and it holds the third highest average annual raw number of STEM graduates at about ten thousand, uh, which is right behind the US and China. Um, despite those countries much having much larger populations. So Germany is uh, leading in terms of science graduates. All right. And number one is uh, South Korea with 32% of STEM graduates. And it had the top 10 largest drop from 39% to 32%. Um, even though the country retained its position at the top. Hmm. So there we, yeah, there you have it. Um, a mix of European countries, and I think very strong mix, um, and few countries outside of Europe. And there is uh, more detailed information on the Tech uh, Insider website um, with the, all forty countries that they've surveyed. That includes things like Israel, places like Israel, United uh, Kingdom, Slovenia, etc. You know, it's it's pretty um, surprising to me that uh, countries like the United Kingdom is only 17th on that list. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's even more surprising is that the United States, with 16%, uh, 
uh, STEM um, uh, degrees uh, overall, 39th. Yeah. Um, so that is that is that is that is pretty low. Um, but if I understood it correctly, this is a survey from 2012, correct? Yes, it's just I know that it's been published recently, but it is from 2012. Yeah. So um, it took a while to put the study together, um, and the um, it's been released recently. So. I guess by the time we get to 2020, they'll publish results for 2015-16, and then we'll see how, how the countries are doing now. But maybe um, science is gaining popularity. And I remember we talked in the first episode um, about these great movies that are coming out mm-hmm. about science and how science is becoming cool again. And I think it will have, um, you know an effect on the young generation, young people, and what they're taking up in school and what they're following, you know, what path they're following in their life uh, later on. We need to make science cool and Absolutely. exciting and popular again. Yes. And you see, Hollywood is doing their bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there'll be some criticism, and that's fair enough because, you know, uh, the, 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 not all movies are accurate, but... Um, I think we're heading to the right direction and it's becoming sexy and cool again and there is various podcasts uh, that praise science and make it exciting. So, yeah. Yeah, and if you want to know um, more about the survey, you can find it on the OECD iLibrary, which is is a great website and uh, you'll find uh, all this information, a huge amount of information of this survey. Which we will link to in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're going to do. Okay, let's move on to uh, polio in Ukraine. Uh, Oh! Yeah, not good news at all. So this starts already two years ago in 2013 when there was an article in the scientific journal The Lancet. That article warned that the vaccination rates against polio in Ukraine had fallen from 80% in 2008 to 50% in 2013. And of course, the question is why? So partly the reason for this is the power of anecdotes. It turns out that in 2008, uh, there was a a case of a teenager who died of sepsis shortly after being vaccinated against measles and rubella. So, but even though both UNICEF and the World Health Organization reported that that death had nothing to do with the vaccination, it still triggered a worry about vaccinations in Ukraine. And then, in addition, if we go back to polio, in 2014 there was a study that showed that parents in Ukraine are generally ill-informed about polio. Only 18% of Ukrainian mothers think that polio is a dangerous disease, and only 27% knows that it can cause paralysis, which is very strange to me because we call polio for infantile paralysis, so it should be fairly obvious. But apparently knowledge about polio was very low, and there were this scare after this uh, boy had died of sepsis after giving uh, getting vaccines, although the vaccines were against measles and rubella, not polio. So vaccination rates went down 
And now, uh, in 2015, we have the bad news that we could expect but didn't want to hear. So there have been two cases of polio that was reported in September, and those are the first cases in Europe since 2010. And with the continued problems, political and with fighting in Ukraine, there's now a big risk that it can become an epidemic. So, therefore, the Ukrainian government started a campaign in October this year, to, uh, and the goal was to vaccinate 90% of all children in ages 5 or below that. But now it mm -hmm. turns out they've only reached 60%. And the World Health Organization has now recommended that Ukraine declare a state of emergency. So this is really bad news. And it, it, it shows how dangerous anti-vaccination sentiments can be. Uh, because we should have gotten rid of polio by now in the world, like we did with smallpox. But because people are afraid of vaccinations, this, these things happen. Absolutely, and and it's it's mind blowing. We, it was thought to have been eradicated. It should have been. Yeah, and uh, it's, and you know, part of part of why why this is happening is because these people don't have a first hand experience of what polio is like. This is this is why things um, and projects like that of the vaccination chronicles. Uh, by uh, Richard Saunders and uh, the Australian skeptics is so important that you you have to know people have to know how awful things were without vaccination. Yeah, and uh, it's very important to that. Um, I, I I don't know. Do you do you know how how many languages it it was translated into? It's I know I know you did did the, yeah yeah you you did the Swedish one. Mm -hmm. Um, I did the Hungarian one, and um, it's very important that other countries from Europe are getting on it. Uh, so please contact us at the info at the esp.eu or Richard Saunders at the Skeptic Zone. Translate the the subtitles into your language, and Richard Saunders is going to add that to the YouTube video, and you can show it around your friends and family and people in your country, your own countries. That's very important. Yes, and and of course we will put, post a YouTube link to the to the video. Definitely, yeah. On the on the show notes, you'll you'll see the the link to the YouTube video, and you can check it out. It's a very it's a very important thing to see. Okay, um, there is a very important thing uh, that we need to report on. That's very recent because it 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 was only concluded uh, on the twelfth of December, uh, so this Saturday, and uh, that is the Paris Climate Summit, and of course it does have a very strong uh, skeptical angle, uh, because mind blowingly, there are still people around the world who are questioning the very fact of global warming, and not only that. Um, some people do accept that there is global warming, but uh, they still deny that there is human-induced global warming in there. But more than 97% of the experts on climate science agree that there is human-induced climate change and we have to do something about it. And there have been lots of different summits, lots of different conferences uh, that try to tackle that very problem. But the scale 
and the final agreement that they got onto just just a couple of days ago is unprecedented. There were 196 different countries involved in the negotiations that lasted for two weeks, but it ended up with an agreement that before 2020, global um, emissions, uh, carbon dioxide emissions, and uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, to be to be correct, because it's not only carbon dioxide, should be peaking before 2020, and that should be uh, met by every single country who agreed on this. One single detail: there was no ratification of the agreement. So what we are celebrating now is there that there was an agreement. And the ratification is going to take place in New York in, in, in April 2016. The interesting thing is that there is an agreement. Something has to be done because there is yeah. a huge problem. Uh, but the problem is really great. What we are talking about uh, in terms of Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has been issuing uh, reports on the, the present state of uh, the climate science and what the projections are. And uh, we are talking about the projections for uh, 2100. So the year t- by the year 2100, uh, if nothing is happening and global emissions are r- r- rising at the rate that they are rising now, we are facing a 4.5 degree elevation of uh, of uh, average mm. temperature. And, and that's huge globally. That is huge. Of course, some people uh, who who don't understand real uh, really um, the depth of of this problem, they they say that okay, that that's why is it a big problem? We, uh, I live in a very cold country. Uh, I wouldn't mind having a higher temperature. But the problem is, when we're talking about global temperatures, uh, of course, it it comes with lots of local differences that makes overall global climate unstable and uh, changed so that's that's the greatest problem so we don't want that to happen uh, but if presently ratified agreements that are now in place are followed then we are talking about a 3.6 degrees rise and elevation in climate uh, global climate temperatures and uh, with the paris agreement there could be a 2.7 degrees by 2100. So this is quite scary. There is one big issue. Uh, this agreement relies on all the the participating countries to do their own share on their own without legal binds. Mm. So... There are no really legally binding parts of this agreement, apparently. So we are just agreeing that there something has to uh, has to be done, and that they agreed on what the 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 greatest measures uh, to take are, and uh, that's a huge thing, but uh, Mm. still a lot to hope for. And other things that they really want to put their money where their mouth is. So they also agreed on um, a yearly amount of $100 billion to finance developing countries 
towards meeting the agreed changes. So that's that's a huge thing. We're really looking forward to this, and I'm sure that there will be lots of reports on on what's going on. And April is is the time of ratification. We'll see where we're going from there. Good, excellent. Oh, and there is one other thing. They're going to be reviewing the process in every five yeah, years. That's important. Yeah, which that's is a important. huge thing. Mm-hmm. Because they want to reflect back on themselves. Whether, okay, how are we doing in terms of meeting the goal? So, uh, homeopathy is in the news again. We reported last time on uh, episode wow. two that the Hungarian Academy of Sciences issued a statement that homeopathy, uh, homeopathic remedies should be tested the same way as any other medicine. And they referred to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences who made an official recommendation uh, yeah. to the same effect earlier this year. So just the background here. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences is an independent organization and they are the ones who appoint the Nobel Prize winners in chemistry and physics every year. So they are quite a prestigious organization. And the reason they made this statement in May this year was that they had a request from the Medical Products Agency in Sweden, which is a governmental body, about the, the, mm-hmm. their opinion on anthroposophical homeopathic products. And the Academy's reply was quite clear. These products should not receive any special treatment, but should be tested as any other medicine. So, uh, so that's good. And the background again to this is that uh, we have to go back and look at the status of homeopathic remedies in Sweden. Homeopathic remedies as such are not approved as medicine in Sweden, but they can be registered to a special list. And if you're on that list, you can still not make any claims of efficacy. But there is an exception since 1993 for anthroposophical homeopathic remedies. So apparently we make uh, a distinction between uh, sugar pills and sugar pills. The reason we have this distinction is that we have a rather loud, it's a small but loud anthroposophical movement in uh, in Sweden and somehow they have an influence on, on important people in the government. So this exception means that you get you you can be prescribed by by doctors. And this re- exception has been renewed several times, but now the EU has requested that you settle the matter once and once and for all. You can't just have random exceptions like this. And the current exception expires this year end. Now on Thursday, uh, 1st of December, four Swedish Nobel laureates and seven representatives of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences published an article in uh, Dagens Nyheter, which is one of the leading newspapers in Sweden, where they again strongly urge Swedish, the Swedish government not to grant anthroposophical homeopathic remedies any special exceptions. So there's a, there's a balance here. Uh, either they get treated as medicine or they get treated as what they are, homeopathic uh, remedies. There have been suggestions for some sort of compromise, etc. But uh, the Royal Swedish Academy is rather against that. So it's it's interesting to see what happens, uh, and we hope that uh, uh, the Swedish government will take a rational decision here. So there 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 is a um, a category of uh, anthroposophical mm. medicine, right? So there's this there's, there's a distinct category in 
alternative medicine, isn't yes. it? Yes, but you know, if you take a sugar pill, which is homeopathic, you cannot, you cannot, of course, analyze it and say this is only homeopathic and this is anthroposophical homeopathic because it's just sugar and water. Okay, and what's the perception uh, of the public? Well, well, in that sense, uh, do you know yes. something about that? Uh, do they do they consider it uh, proper uh, medicine? Uh, some do, of course, but not uh, not to everybody. It was part of the study that the Swedish skeptics did uh, uh, earlier this year. We asked about homeopathy. So, yeah, yeah. on average, yeah, on average, fourteen percent of the Swedish uh, population believes in homeopathy. Uh, and it, there's okay. a difference uh, okay. that more women than men. There is an age distribution as well. So if you were part of the hippie movement in in the 60s, so if you were between 50 and 65 years old now, <laughs> yeah. uh, you tend to believe more on it and, than the average. And there's another one. If you uh, sympathize with the, the Green Party in Sweden, then 33% believe in homeopathy. Okay, guys, thank you very much. And now let's move on to our first interview. On every episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. This time, we have Michael Marshall on the show, a skeptical activist, co-founder and vice president of the Merseyside Skeptic Society, co-host of its official podcast, Skeptics with a K, host of the podcast Be Reasonable, and project director of the Good Thinking Society. Marsh, welcome to the show. Uh, it's very nice to be here, yeah. Thanks for inviting me on. Hi, Marsh. Hello, everyone. <laughs> First of all, um, do you have a double somewhere? <laughs> because this amount of work cannot be done by one person. <laughs> uh, well, I think the thing is, when we started the Merseyside Skeptics in, in 2009, I, I quickly developed a mentality of just trying to throw myself at as many different things as possible to see which bits I was interested in doing, see what areas I was really interested in uh, in sort of exploring and, uh, and being active about. So some of those things have kind of fallen by the wayside. I don't blog as much as I used to. I used to kind of blog a couple of times a day. And uh, I don't do the bad PR stuff as often as I used to, but uh, it's still it's still there in the background. But uh, yeah, some of them have been things that I've I've kept up, and I think that's kind of a, how I like to kind of um, say to people when they're starting to get into activism. I always try and say, uh, turn your hand to lots of different things if, if you have the time of the the energy, and find out what you're really interested in because you don't have to do the thing that you're not interested in. Uh, it doesn't work. It's not fun if uh, you're you're forcing yourself to do something that you just don't find interesting at all, really. Yeah, like me with writing. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> but how did you yourself get in, get involved in in skepticism then? Because you mentioned, um, and of course, you're a co-founder of the Merseyside Skeptic Society. But how did it start for you? Uh, it was a slightly odd experience, really. I think I, 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 as many people do, I started watching the odd TV show here. I think I watched a lot of um, Penn and Teller on TV, uh, and I think I started listening to a couple of podcasts here and there. I think I stumbled across the Skeptics Guide because I wanted to hear what Teller's voice sounded like, and I found that he didn't interviewed him so I thought I'd have a listen to that there uh, and that got me interested in seeing whether there was any skepticism around where I lived really this has been sort of like mid 2008 I think um, and it was only once I thought uh, I'd start looking for skeptics in Liverpool I just happened to google it and I came across uh, a fellow online who was saying there isn't any skeptics in Liverpool but we should there should be a group for skeptics in Liverpool and um, literally the next day I thought I'll, I'll get in touch with that guy and say we should form a group Uh, and overnight, it was my call, and overnight he'd, uh, he'd started the Merseyside Skeptic Society uh, that night before mm. I had a chance to get in touch with him. So it was just a, a weird coincidence. But you don't even have a, a scientific background, do you? 
No, my background was in uh, English, uh, literature and language I did at, uh, at university. Although I was very science interested as a kid, I was always somebody who was uh, at school. I was, I was equally adept at the, the arts and humanities and well, the, the, the English literature language kind of stuff uh, and uh, science. And it was really a, a coin toss as to which of those uh, I pursued into to university. So I, was, uh, I always kind of um, complained that society kind of forces us to either be humanities people or science people uh like the uh two worlds that could never collide um so i was kind of down the middle and happened to choose the uh the more artsy uh language route than uh, than science but i was always very science interested i find it very important to to point this out because um many many people don't don't really want to get involved in skepticism not having any background in science and scientific skepticism but but some other other things like humanities and um this shouldn't keep them from from doing anything and and from from getting involved well i think um it's it's very easy for us to to uh conflate skepticism with science like uh yeah. you'll go to i mean obviously we'll put on skeptic conferences and you always have things like physics at a skeptic conference but yeah. it's very rare you'll have things like history at a skeptic conference because we see it as skepticism well that just must mean science and tell me about the big bang and cosmology well actually if you look at the tools of history when done correctly you're trying to look through to see uh, of conflicting sources what's the most likely to be true where things kind of align how to trust your sources these are skeptical tools it's just they i think really the um the history of the the, the modern skeptical movement if you go back not that long ago it was people well houdini and then randy uh, who didn't have science backgrounds um it's just where we are at the moment i think that the the second or third generation of, of skepticism was led by people uh first carl sagan uh people like steve novella people like that who've who've got really uh heavy science backgrounds and and that seems to have steered the way that we are but i think we we shouldn't um constrain skepticism to merely be scientific topics i'm a big fan of turning skepticism to things like the media and seeing just how much of the media is is not quite as it uh yep. as it appears to be from the surface so i think we should uh any chance that we get to broadly use a skeptical toolbox uh on any topic where it's uh, worthwhile i think we should encourage it and we shouldn't say to people that uh just because you don't have a, a baccalaureate in science uh, that you can't take part i think anybody can take part as long as they're, they're using the the tools in the right way yeah and every, everybody who is interested in it should take part and for us coming from eastern european countries probably it's a bit more even more difficult uh due to the old systems uh approach uh with with a lot of uh, authoritarianism going on yeah i think so i i also think uh it's why projects and endeavors like this podcast are so valuable when i was at the european skeptics congress in london it was um, i think it was uh, one of the chaps from the the, the czech skeptics uh, was yep. pointing out that um under the the old regime all of these all mysticism was outright banned illegal some yep. people weren't exposed to it and therefore weren't adept at figuring out why it was nonsense so now that uh once those walls fell in a very real sense uh it's a, it's the floodgates have been opened and uh these these mystical claims that people uh in areas of Europe where we had they weren't previously outlawed and we're used to seeing oh well yes we understand that's nonsense uh maybe those uh, those populations aren't quite as used to being able to figure their way through which i think is absolutely fascinating and it's very easy for us uh and i'm utterly guilty of it to mistake skepticism for an english language phenomenon and it really isn't it really <laughs> absolutely isn't there is one very important thing going on in your country uh the united kingdom that we wanted to talk to you about and that is the the recent news about homeopathy as we understand 
and um, the the NHS might reconsider uh, putting homeopathy on a blacklist so that it cannot be prescribed on the NHS. Um, is that is that correct? Yeah. So this is a, a, a something that we've been working on with uh, the Good Thinking Society for about um, about eighteen months, I think, something like that, maybe slightly longer, uh, as part of a, an overall project that we did. So when I first joined Good Thinking, one of the first things we did was uh, we were approached by a, a legal firm who were interested in, in exploring whether the provision of homeopathy on the National Health Service, so using taxpayer money, was even a lawful act, given that the government admitted homeopathy doesn't work. So he said, we know it doesn't work, but we're going to carry on funding it anyway. And uh, our legal firm who came to us kind of said, we think this might technically be a bit like a misuse of public funds. And we want to see what, what we can do about that and whether there's any interesting arguments. And one of the most uh, successful ones we've had recently was this blacklisting. So there's this uh, there's a list in I think most European countries, part of the EU, uh, if they're going to control what gets uh, prescribed by uh, by taxpayers uh, by you know, on taxpayer money, they have to either have a, a list of things that you aren't allowed to prescribe or a list of things that you are only allowed to prescribe. So a white list. So either you have uh, you know you can only pick it from this list or everything except what's on a blacklist. And in in the UK we have a blacklist. There's three thousand products on it. And so we looked at every one of the um, arguments about why uh, something could go on the blacklist. And it seemed clear to us that homeopathy, uh, it, was, it was very hard to explain why they wouldn't list it. So we, um, we've been writing to the Department of Health and with our, our legal team sending quite uh, complex letters outlining uh, the, the argument. And uh, we even had to essentially threaten to take them to court if they, uh, if they refused to consider what we were saying. And they recently came back and said that we, we, they think we might have a point and they're going to really take a look at this and uh, consult as to whether to put on the blacklist in, in the new year, which would be a major victory. It really would be a, a, a really significant step. Wow. It really is. Can you tell us how much is currently being spent um, by the NHS on homeopathy? Yeah, sure. So there's there's a couple of numbers uh, to this, really. So um, first of all, the way that the NHS works is that there isn't a single body. Uh, there's no position at the NHS who is responsible for commissioning homeopathy. So nobody at the NHS knew how much they were spending because all the decisions are made by uh, 209 local groups all around the country. And so the only way to figure out how much the, the whole country was spending was to individually ask each one of those different groups and follow them up and chase them until you get an answer and then collate that figure. So that's what I spent six months doing. Hmm. And in the end of that, it meant that uh, good thinking were the first people in this country really to really understand how much money uh, the NHS was spending on homeopathy. We knew better than the NHS did. Uh, and it's about it's between three and five million pounds a year, as, as best as we can tell. Um, there's a little bit of a discrepancy, a bit of uncertainty, because there were many areas in London that just wouldn't tell us how much they were funding. They said it was impossible for them to know. And that's a very odd and unusual uh, circumstance there. Um, so there's about so if we say five million pounds ish, I think it's about reasonable. Uh, well, it's very unreasonable, but it's about accurate, I think. <laughs> um, so this blacklisting decision wouldn't kill off five million pounds. It would kill off just prescribing. So just what GPs can prescribe to their patients, which is about 110, 120,000 pounds a year. Um, but what we're also doing while we're tackling the blacklist and the GPs, we're also going after the homeopathic hospitals, which is where the real money is being spent and uh, making sure that uh, where there are local areas of the NHS that are referring to hospitals, challenging those decisions. And that's something that we're doing. I was just in a meeting, in fact, to challenge Liverpool's uh, funding. Um, so there's only... 24 different local bodies around the country out of these 209 that actually funds homeopathy. And we've currently got something like uh, seven or eight of them under review. 
Um, so there's a very, very good chance that we can restrict homeopathy spending to just inside of London and then really start uh, putting pressure on in London. So we, we're we're slowly getting somewhere uh, and it's taken uh, 18 months of, uh, of hard work by our charity, but it's really starting to bear fruits now. And there's some uh, fairly, fairly spectacular headlines being generated by it, too. How many of you are actually working on this? Sure. Well, the Good Thinking Society, I'm, uh, I'm the only full-time employee of the charity. It's a charity that Simon Singh set up and he, he runs it. Uh, so Simon does around about one or two days a week uh, working for the charity. And he, he tends to do things that are very uh, top-level direction-y kind of things. He doesn't really get, have the chance or the time to, to focus on details. I work five days a week. Uh, Laura Thomason works two and a half days a week. And then we also have uh, a chap called Johnny Shannon, who who works now and then. He kind of does a couple of days, days here, a couple of days there. Um, so it's really, it's less than two full human beings per week <laughs> in terms oh. of uh, ter- person hours. Um, and then we have our legal team, which has been, uh, there's, there's two lawyers who've been dipping in and out here and there to, to make make cases and things. And we we get a lot of support from uh, Alan Hennis at the Nightingale Collaboration, who we work with quite closely too. Um, but it really is quite a small group, and I've been the main person doing the work on that. Laura's not been as involved. She's been off doing other things, and Simon gets involved to, to answer a few questions and point us in the right direction and figure out how to strategically do things. But uh, it's it's basically been a a one full-time job uh, to, to try and get some of this done. So it just really shows you, I think, why uh, the Good Thinking Society, why, why I was so committed to joining it and why I think it's such a, a valuable organisation. Obviously, I'm going to say that I'm part of it, but I think it's quite valuable because it means we can set aside a person's time for a week and, and see what you can actually do uh, in scepticism to really affect things. And we're able to get quite a lot of things done because we've got the time to actually sit down and, and really focus and stuff. So, so are you focusing also on other uh, uh, topics? Yeah, absolutely. So we've uh, homeopathy has probably only been it's probably been the most uh, attention grabbing thing that we've done, but it's probably made up about a tenth of my work, maybe slightly less than that. Um, so we're doing things like I recently went along to see uh, Peter Popov, uh, the faith healer that we'll all uh, know and probably not love. Um, I spent six months uh, on and off investigating the uh, his, his current operation with his miracle water and his magic items and his demands of money. And uh, I went along to actually see his show and I, I was able to get some undercover footage there and actually witness how his show is constructed and that's all that was all a big investigation that i put together a huge dossier and sent it across to the uh the police fraud team who are currently investigating it to see whether there's something they could do there so that was kind of another part of it we've been involved in helping people who've been um going along to psychic shows to hand out leaflets about, with information about cold reading techniques and then they've been quite aggressively bullied by uh, by members of the psychics team and so we've been helping those uh, helping uh, that particular person make sure that uh, they aren't being sued and aren't being uh, intimidated and pushed around and um so i mean there's lots of other things too we've been working with a dentist to uh highlight the issue of mercury free dentists uh the dentists who say that mercury fillings are going to cause this that and the other and you have to pay many thousands of pounds to have them removed from your teeth uh, and there's no good evidence that that's the case uh so we were able to work with the uh the general dental council which is the the regulator for, for dentists in the uk to have them issue guidance to dentists to say you can't be making these claims about mercury. And we've also been making complaints about some of the worst cases that we found of dentists seeing some pretty extreme things about mercury. Um, so we, we, we tend to sort of cast our net fairly wide. And uh, what I tend to find is the, uh, the thing that I'm working on at the moment is the thing that you'll hear about in a couple of months. <laughs> Generally <laughs> speaking, I think it's that, uh, that kind of thing. So yeah, we, we try, and, try and follow, follow interesting uh, opportunities uh, where we find them and, and see if we can 
turn them into stories or turn them into complaints or turn them into uh, things that we can notify the media or the police about uh, or regulators about to try and uh, affect change, really. And what what drives uh, your focus um, in terms of topics? Um, the public opinion, like uh, what's a public opinion and homeopathy in, in in your country? Yeah, well, in terms of what drives us, it's it's quite a tricky thing to say, I suppose, because I mean, the, the overwhelming majority of the public, I think, don't know what homeopathy is. But I think there are there are many people in the public who would feel warmly towards homeopathy without having a clue what it is. So I think this is the the issue that we sort of face, really, is that it's very easy for us as skeptics to say that there are those who really believe in homeopathy and there are those like us who know it's nonsense. And that is this waged battle, this pitched battle between two contrasting forces, when really... It might be 15% of the country uh, no homeopathy is nonsense, 15% of the country really, truly believe in it. And then there's 70% of people who have no idea really what it really is, who don't really know either way, who might be persuaded to use it, but could be persuaded not to use it if you could tell them what it really is and get them to understand that. And I think that's the kind of the landscape that we have in the UK is trying to um, remind people or educate people as to what homeopathy is, because they, they'd be very unwilling to support it once they, they really know um, so that's kind of part, of part of what drives us. But I guess in terms of what we actually do, um, I think the main thing that drives us is, to, is, is where we think we could be productive, where we think we can actually have uh, a genuine effect. Because what we don't want to be is just spending all of our time uh, trying to either you know, knock down the biggest mountain we can find and never making a dent or, uh, or wasting our time arguing with homeopaths on Twitter, which is never going to get us anybody anywhere. We're trying to figure out when we look at an issue what is the most effective we think we can be and, and how best to do that, really. And um, there was a great thing, a great um, project um, that, that became an international one, that uh, the 1023 homeopathy, mm. there's nothing in it campaign. It really helped uh, worldwide in raising awareness about homeopathy. The international challenge that, that started from the Merseyside, as I believe, you challenged the world. <laughs> yeah, so we, we sat, Merseyside Skeptic Society set up in February 2009. And then in, I think, September or October 2009, we thought we'd do something big and silly. And we came up with the 1023 campaign, which ran in uh, January 2010 in the UK and was front page of the BBC News and was front page and was in all of the major newspapers. and was this big, ridiculous, spectacular, daft thing, <laughs> which was so bizarre that we had people uh, in 13 cities around the UK uh, overdosing on homeopathy all at the same time, 300 yeah. people making the news and all sorts of things. So, so it was the next year that we decided to take it internationally. And we had uh, 1,700 people in 70 cities in 32 countries, uh, including a guy who was in Antarctica <laughs> taking a homeopathic overdose, which was incredible. It was just <laughs> it, it was so bizarre. Um, and I think part of so there were a couple of things, really, is that one of the, the points we were making with that was that um, the action itself was very small. Take a, a homeopathic overdose. I mean, it's, it's been obviously it's been done before. Randy's been doing it for years. Uh, we got part of the idea from the Belgian skeptics when we Googled them and found they'd done a, a, a homeopathic overdose with 13 of them and it made the, the news. So we thought this sounds like a great idea. How big could we make that idea? Um, so the idea that the, the, the action itself is small, but the cumulative effect of everybody around the world doing it at once was really significant. It really did make quite a difference. I mean, I, I spoke to um, the Polish skeptics running the Polish 1023 for us, and he said after the 1023 in Poland, uh, sales of homeopathy dropped by 19%, which was incredible for the effect of, of what they were doing in Poland based on this national, this international idea. 
So I think it's really important that we find ways of of collaborating internationally, or at least the very least sharing information. And I think that's that's the really important thing. Um, when when we know there is, uh, for example, a big American cancer quack coming over to the UK for a, a to do, to give a series of talks, uh, which he did earlier this year, a guy called um, Brian Clement, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing I did was figure out where else in Europe he was going, and I said to Pontus, he's, I think he's coming to Sweden. I said to Catherine de Jong, he's coming to the Netherlands. Uh, so we're able to give everybody the heads up and say, this is what we're doing in the UK. Maybe you guys could take a look at doing something yeah. too and um, yeah. Um, yeah that kind of collaboration is important yeah we did have a look at it unfortunately we wasn't able to manage it really but but we appreciate the the initiative but I think that's the, the key really is that even if we are able to just give each other the time to think about it then we're going to get a lot further but I think it's so easy for us to and as I say I'm utterly guilty of it it's so easy for us to see skepticism as bordered uh, at the, the confines of our country or our kind of cluster of countries and not think beyond that and I think it's so important for us to be uh, alive and aware to the fact that there, there is this um, this cluster of, of uh, really fascinating, really passionate, sceptical activism that's happening all around Europe and all around the world. And it's just that while there is a network there, I think we could be much, much stronger. I think we really could uh, all uh, work much harder to think European first almost, you know, or to have somebody involved in every organisation whose job is to think, right, what can this mean for other countries? Um, I think those kind of things are really useful because it uh, certainly when you're saying, Andras, that um, in uh, in Eastern Europe you may be fighting uh, a different type of battle because of the, the yeah. history and how things are played out. It might also be that you're fighting battles that were fought in America 30 years ago. Exactly. That the answers are all there. You know? Yeah, but <laughs> um, we can make their journey shorter than ours, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Learn from our mistakes. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think cross cultural collaboration, cross uh, cross border collaboration is uh, is is where we should be going. And, and with the internet, it's so easy for us these days to uh, to have a a, a contacts list or uh, to see people on Facebook. You know, you you invited me because uh, you know me from coming to QED and uh, Pontus. Obviously, I've met you around as well, and I can drop you a line. And the more that we're able to network together, the more that we're able to. To, to recognize each other and to see and to know who's out there, the better we'll be as a, an international community, I think. Absolutely. So, Marsh, um, I've seen you talk a few times and QD was one of the places and then I've seen you talk at the um, Skeptics in the pub as well. Mm-hmm. And, and you always come across as very um, polite and patient person. You come across and talk to various people who believe in different things and uh, mm. I, I want to call it all, all kinds of woo <laughs> uh, but um, how do you how do you stay calm and, and polite and collected during these discussions um, when when you have them yeah it's, it's funny I get asked that a lot and uh, weirdly it's it's not something that um, that I, I think too much about because I don't think I really struggle it's not like I'm uh, uh, fighting to suppress uh, anger I, I don't know whether I'm just curiously an, uh, not a very angry person I don't recall particularly getting angry very easy. But I think part of it is you have to think about what you're trying to achieve and uh, what the, the best method of achieving that would be. And if what you're trying to achieve is to make yourself feel really great and really good about how smart and clever and better than someone you are, then by being angry and uh, nasty and sarcastic and uh, and all these things, maybe that's your best route to it. Um, but that's not, never what I'm trying to achieve. So what am I? There's only a couple of things I, I normally want to achieve. Um, one is that I want to understand the person I'm speaking to as much as possible. 
because I, I might be speaking to the most um, hardcore, uh, unchangeable homeopath you'll ever meet, and I will never change their mind. I'll never get them to pause and question for a second, perhaps, uh, that, uh, that homeopathy doesn't work. But I can understand every one of their arguments as thoroughly as possible, because the next person I meet might not be as convinced as them, but might have been convinced by their arguments. So if I understand those arguments, I might be able to find the way to pick my way through them. So the next time I come up against them, I've got a a much easier to understand answer that might stop someone falling for it. So I think because I'm trying to understand them, you have to ask questions, you have to be curious, you have to be genuinely curious about the person, um, but you have to keep that conversation flowing because the moment that you're antagonistic or overly antagonistic is the moment that the conversation shuts down and whatever goal you're trying to achieve is is just not going to happen, I think. Yeah, I guess um, I've heard it somewhere else, especially when you have a debate that um, is witnessed by more than just that one person and other people are listening in. You might not convince that one person you're talking to, but you might change minds of people who um sort of on the fence and they're just listening in and making their opinion yeah absolutely i think that's absolutely true um and but it's, i think it's even the case when you're speaking one-on-one with someone i want to still leave that conversation with them at worst thinking well i disagree with him but he was a nice guy because then they don't get this um, big built-up impression in their mind of the evil sceptics who are just coming to be naysayers and angry and terrible. If I come across like I'm not an angry person and I'm not an unreasonable person, but I've got some reasonable questions, um, then at worst, it's very, very hard for them to mischaracterize me when they're talking to people they agree with. And at best, maybe some of those questions will will linger with them and will uh, will stay with them long enough for them to, to start uh, questioning it. So I think... I, I don't. I don't ever think there's a situation where you lose by being the the nice guy. Um, and I, I, I think it's so often that you lose quite quickly the moment you lose your temper, lose your cool, lose your humanity, and uh, and, and start becoming very surly or aggressive to people. I think that's the easiest way to lose an argument that you've got. The way I see it is that I think the issues that we talk about, I think we're right on them. I think we have the right answers. But it's still possible to go into an argument with all the right answers and still lose <laughs> and still come off worse yeah. if you've been it so aggressive and nasty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we've got the, the right, the, we've got the, some really good answers in our back pocket. Let's rely on them and uh, not rely on the, the insults and the, the nasty comments and the, uh, uh, the smug or the, you know, the sarcasm or, or these kind of things that we, we see thrown at us. Um, when someone's being very nasty to you, there's nothing that annoys them more by, than by you being incredibly polite. It's uh, very effective. <laughs> no, but, but that's all very rational, etc. But have you ever lost your temper sometime when you've discussed with someone? Yes, yes, I have. I have. Uh, it's, it's rarer than you think. And, and it, it's not the times you'd imagine. So if you listen to Be Reasonable, I, I've spoken to people who um, I think have been certainly, from what they're saying, treating people with deadly diseases uh, in their hundreds, if not thousands. And that could well mean that they are guilty of the deaths of thousands of people, you know, potentially, I mean, in a worst case scenario, uh, I tend to rationalize myself relatively well. You expose yourself to things and try and keep calm and you learn a lot and you, you become a better skeptic by listening, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's a great approach. It's just not easy to do. It's Whenever not, I'm listening it, yeah. to, to be reasonable, um, I'm, I'm, sometimes I just have to stop it for a moment and, and, and calm down <laughs> because I'm... I'm 
I feel sometimes it's outrageous what 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 the other one is saying, and you're just oh yeah, interesting. Well, the, the hard thing is when you're conducting those interviews. I mean, especially when some guest will say something uh, particularly out there. And I'm thinking of uh, Dr. Leo Robello in, in particular. Yeah, some, yeah, uh, yeah. I remember that. Utterly remarkable clearly. views. Yeah. Um, so the tricky thing in, in having a conversation like that is that you hear, you have to be listening intently to what they're saying, uh, withhold any visceral reaction you'd have, <laughs> yeah. think through what the answer to what they're saying or the, the, the corollary or the kind of the, the, the way to diffuse what they're saying is, and then think how to filter that back through a, a way of speaking that removes any nastiness to it. And so it's, you, you're doing a lot of kind of mental gymnastics. But in an interview like that, it's, it's not too bad because the whole time I'm thinking, as they're saying things that are uh, so outrageous and, and quite offensive in, in lots of ways I'm just thinking this is great radio this is really <laughs> great radio <laughs> well hats off <laughs> QED is coming back as I understand that that's right yes so uh, we've been doing QED uh, every year for five years now uh, it's jointly we always say it's jointly run by the Merseyside Skeptics and the Greater Manchester Skeptics kind of a broad group of, uh, of six of us here in uh, in the northwest of England we put on this big conference in uh, in Manchester uh, so the next time it's going to be uh, October 15th and 16th uh, I, I believe it is in uh, the Mercure Hotel and um, yeah it should be fun I mean you guys have all been to QED haven't you yeah. Yes, but just pretend that some of the listeners haven't been to QED. What is it? <laughs> it's. I think it's. It might be the biggest skeptical conference in Europe, and it's kind of a two-day. Uh, we see it as a two-day sort of festival, really. It's kind of a a bit of a celebration, and uh, how we try and see it is that um, the 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 people that the stars of QED and the 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 reason for QED, QED's existence is the attendees. And everything is, is set around getting people in that hotel. So it's not about, uh, we just want to go and see these big, amazing speakers and fly them in. And that's why everyone's there. It's more the other way. We want to get as many people together into one community space for a weekend as possible. And the speakers are the reasons that we, you get yourselves there, basically. But we always see it as a, as a, a place for people to, to meet the skeptics, to kind of form a community, to talk to people. Um, my, my big hope is that there are bonds that are formed at QED that go on to be very useful in the skeptical community beyond that as people want to take on uh their their kind of their passions and, and take it further but um it's it's always a great time i mean uh, it, i don't think i've ever really experienced much of a qd because as an organizer you run around uh <laughs> doing so much but um the things that excite me most about qd is when people come away saying that speaker i'd never heard of them but they were amazing you know i, I now need to look at everything they've ever done because QD's introduced me to someone like this and uh, they've just kind of uh, blown me away. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what QD is, really. <laughs> QD 2014 was the very event where the three of us uh, hosting this show met for the first time. Ah, really? Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we owe you guys a lot. Yeah. You don't know <laughs> what you're responsible for. Yeah, you never know. You never know. Well, that's great. That's exactly what we want QED to be, really. We want to be that uh, that kind of catalyst, uh, as well as just being a great kind of party and a chance to kind of celebrate and be in a place where you don't have to uh, bite your tongue and pretend that uh, you, you uh, don't want to challenge your wife's mother when she talks about astrology or your <laughs> uncle's brother, you know, these kind of things. You can, uh, you can uh, relax and know that you're amongst your people, I think, is the, is the great thing about it. 
So it's good fun. I'm, I'm, I think I'm, it's safe to say that we are all looking forward to, to being there again. We do recommend it to, to others. Um, it's, it's, it's a great event. You shouldn't miss that. Absolutely. <laughs> and we're going to be um, reporting on, on the new developments um, about uh, the next QED. But uh, where can people follow you and find out more about your work with, uh, with the Good Thinking Society or the Merseyside Skeptics? Um, so if you if you want to see about uh, good thinking, which is probably the most active, it's really the most active and effective thing that I'm doing at the moment, and uh, it, it's really quite valuable work. I think uh, I'm quite proud of it. So if you want to see that, if you go to Good Thinking Society. Uh, that's all the information there. Um, you can go to Merseyside Skeptics to see the podcast and the other things that we do there. That's merseysideskeptics.org.uk. And then if you just want to see me talking about some of that stuff and then occasionally making very daft jokes, uh, you can find me on Twitter <laughs> at Mr. M. Marsh. <laughs> Great, fantastic. Mr. M. Marsh, a.k.a. Michael Marshall, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you a lot. Thank Thanks you so lot. much for having me. Thanks, Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Bye. Thank Bye. you. So, Yelena, mm-hmm. I would really like you to educate us on a certain logical fallacy. All right. So, today's logical fallacy is appeal to popularity, argumentum ad numerum, also known as bandwagon argument, peer or peer pressure. Um, So, he's using popularity of a premise or proposition as evidence for its truthfulness. And this is a fallacy, which is very difficult to spot. It's because our common sense tells us that if something is popular, it must be good or true or valid. But... This is not so. As skeptics, we know. Especially in society where clever marketing and social and political weight and money can buy popularity. And so I don't have to go far to for, to get an example. Um, any commercial you look at, um, the shampoo advert for ladies or men, will tell you that 90% of the women um, or men said that this shampoo made their hair beautiful and shiny and, and smooth and anything under the sun and then therefore it must be true so you run and buy the shampoo this magical thing that may, will make your hair all pretty um however it's not the case and also you know a sample of 10 doesn't really or 20 or even 90 it doesn't mean you know it's that popular but they make it sound like it is now this um these claims that that are made by advertisement companies um, can be very nonsensical and um, confusing and great sometimes. And you think, wow, really? Um, however, in some instances, um, they're not true. Ah, shocking news. Um, there is a great um, campaign that was started uh, not long ago, um, and it's, was, it's called Ask for Evidence. Um, and they've got a website, askforevidence.com, ask for evidence, all one word. And anybody can go there and fill in a form and say, look, I've seen this advert and it's claiming A, B and C. And I'd like to know what basis they're claiming it on, uh, what evidence uh, the company has behind it. And the email is sent to the, the said company and the said company has to provide um, backup. And I think it's a fantastic tool um, to tackle any bullshit claims. 
um, especially of big marketing companies and advertisement, etc. And I think it's a great initiative. Um, they've got uh, this initiative started in, in America as well as Europe. Please go and check them out. Um, support them if you can. And we should all stay vigilant. So here we go. Um, that's the argument from popularity. Yeah, and uh, Ask for Evidence is run by a British charitable organization with the name Sense About Science. So uh, check it out. Uh, check check out their website. Uh, by the way, guys, uh, I have a favorite uh, argument from popularity. Mm-hmm. It's a bit leaning towards um, demagogy. Uh, demagoguery. Sorry. So it, it it's leaning a bit towards demagoguery. But... Uh, it goes like uh, eat feces, million billions and billions of flies cannot be wrong. Yeah, it's a silly one, but it really shows you how how it mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. As well as as well as the the argument that uh, homeopathy must be working because all of the pharmacies are full of them. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that's just not true. No, and you know there there is uh, you know let, let's see everybody knows in quotation marks that C vitamin C is good against the common cold and there's no yeah. and there's no proof for it but everybody knows yeah. it so it must be true yeah absolutely um well there is another thing um an argument from wikipedia mm-hmm. that can be <laughs> that can be said i don't think it's it's an officially existing um logical fallacy though now. um <laughs> but uh yeah when when something is there something you you read on Wikipedia, you tend to um, accept it as fact. But the problem is that sometimes you have to check those facts. And uh, this is this is what an important initiative, um, um, international project called Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia is all about. So uh, to, to try and better Wikipedia articles um, in the sense that they are based on reliable sources and proper evidence. As a representative of this international project and the leader of a Hungarian group of um, of uh, GSOW, I went this September to a Wikipedia Science Conference to London and I recorded an interview with the convener of that uh, conference, uh, Martin Polter. So, let's listen to that interview now. Hello, this is uh, Andras Pinter from the Hungarian Skeptic Society and Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia, reporting from Wikipedia Science Conference, which is a brilliant uh, set of talks, and with me here, uh, the convener of that conference, uh, Martin Polter. Hi, I'm very happy to be here, and... Actually, this is not this is not the first time I see you uh, because no. I had the opportunity to see you on a on a panel on the QED conference, Question Explore Discover Up in Manchester in April. And I saw you give a talk the day before. The yeah, on uh, Guerrilla Skeptics right. on Wikipedia. So, um, first of all, you're the convener of this uh, of this conference. Um, is this the first uh, of this kind of conferences? So this is the first Wikipedia Science Conference. Uh, there have been events where Wikipedians have gone to science conferences to run a session, 
there have been workshops where Wikipedia trainers have gone into laboratories, scholarly societies, universities to train researchers to contribute to Wikipedia. But this is something different. This is where we've put on a conference as Wikipedians and invited the scientists, the scientific publishers, science communicators in to come to listen to us. Um, so it's a, a step forward. It builds on things we've done before, but it feels good. So it wouldn't, uh, the, the, the question wouldn't really fit as to uh, how the idea came about, because, because it's kind of obvious, right? <laughs> well, it's something we've wanted to do for a long time. So I, I'm involved with Wikimedia UK, the, the national charity that supports Wikipedia and the, the other sites. Um, and I do expert outreach. So uh, there's educators in universities, there's researchers in laboratories, and we try to get noticed by them and try to make them think about Wikipedia, Wikidata, and other sites as ways they can spread their knowledge. And maybe, maybe they could be persuaded to have a duty if they're getting charitable funds or taxpayer money to share knowledge. They have a duty to give that back to the public by making it as easy as possible to share on Wikipedia. So we, we've gone into workplaces, we've written guest articles for newsletters, different, we've gone to conference sessions, different ways to reach uh, those audiences. Um, last year we had the Wikimania conference, a really huge uh, conference in, about Wikipedia and Wikimedia and the other sites in London, and there was a great science strand. And there was a scientist from Cambridge, Peter Murray-Rust, who started up and said, um, you know, to be a scientist is to be a Wikipedian, to be interested in sharing knowledge freely for its own sake. You are a Wikipedian, you're a scientist. And I wanted more people to say that. I want more people to say, I'm a scientist and I'm a Wikimedian. I felt the time is to have a dedicated event for that, so I, I set this in motion. Yeah, it's very interesting to see um, uh, so many scientists uh, who are involved in, in editing Wikipedia because the, the, the overall um, picture for the, for the outsider is, is normally that, that uh, scientists and Wikipedia don't get along pretty well. And, uh, and now the, another picture starts to form that, we, that there is, we are not hopeless in that sense. Um, so thanks for, for putting together this, uh, this conference. But still there is something uh, that occurred to me that it doesn't look very much uh, international. Uh, do you have intentions to extend it to, to an international level? Um, I would love to run an international conference about Wikipedia and science. This happened as an almost no-budget conference. Despite us being in a, a lovely conference centre in London, almost no money has changed hands. And that's because we've got charities at each point, and even the wine reception we had was funded by a charity. So it's not. Can we name those charities? Yeah. Oh, that's Royal Society of Chemistry, and so we're in the building of uh, the Wellcome Trust, which is um, a very rich charity, but which funds open access research and funds all sorts of stuff related to promoting health and science. It's just awesome. health. <laughs> yes, it's, it's the ideal place to have it. So we've got to use this conference centre for free, because what we're doing is about promoting open access, which is what they believe in. So it's not been at all. The, what people think of as a conference, there's not sponsors, booths, uh, a conference bag and lots of freebies. It's all being done with, with a conference programme that we printed the night before out of an office printer. Um, I would love to have a big budget and bring in speakers from around the world. And we're not there yet, but we have had speakers from Germany, Austria, uh, uh, and one from the US from the Wikimedia Foundation. Yeah. Um, Fortunately, they've been paid by their workplaces to come 
it's better not. But we're very lucky to have that and more in future, I hope. Okay, and you are also running uh, editathons, right? So as well as this work that I do as a volunteer, I have a job at the University of Oxford where I'm a Wikipedian in residence at the Bodleian Libraries. And the, the Bodleian Library is the second biggest library in the UK after the British Library. Uh, so I'm lucky to go there and upload content from there to Wikipedia to counteract the bias in Wikipedia. So about non-Western geography. And as part of that, I'm also running events about women in science. So we're going to get people um, sharing images of scientists yeah. women, historical, current, creating articles, um, transcribing text. Um, but we're going to have a lot of events. It's the it's two centuries since the birth of Ada Lovelace, who was the first computer programmer. Yeah. So we're going to celebrate that in a really big way. And Great. hopefully this will encourage those people, some of them will be female scientists themselves, to keep involved and keep editing Wikipedia. So you say it's, it's countering the, partly the lack of information, partly the misinformation that's out there. Have you heard about the, the guerrilla skepticism on Wikipedia project? Because, uh, because the aim of that project is some, some, somewhat similar. Yes. I'm aware of guerrilla skeptics on Wikipedia and some of what it's done I, I really admire. I work in something called Wikiproject Rational Skepticism. Oh, yeah. which is sort of the on, it's, it's much less active and there's less doing, but it's kind of the totally public on Wikipedia version. Uh, so yes, I have edited about parapsychology topics and psychokinesis and... Uh, which is great in this country. Um, yes. We, we have, yeah. we have great, great um, advocates of skepticism on, on that field, like uh, Richard Wiseman and yes. Chris French. Yeah. yeah. So it's not so much about people, but about issues. They're like, so, so I, my PhD was in philosophy of science, and then I learned more about psychology. So I edited about psychology on Wikipedia, and about things that pretend to be psychology but aren't, like <laughs> some of the pseudoscientific stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think when I started in, in 2008, we had a much harder time with people persistently pushing kind of pseudoscience viewpoints, but Wikipedia's become less tolerant of them and more willing to call out like, this is not knowledge, this is or this is not proven or mainstream, it's the opposite and we, we, we must not represent something as just somebody's theory or just a wacky fringe idea as though it were accepted science. Yeah. So it's become much easier to, and I think those articles are going in a more scientific direction. And as a Wikipedia insider, I, th I think we're really glad to see uh, fringe scientists complaining, Rupert Sheldrake complaining, the energy psychologists refusing to donate to Wikipedia because uh, the, pa the pages about energy psychology say it's not science. Well, they've just got to put up with that. Those are the kind of complaints that we want to get. So yeah, not part of the guerrilla skeptics community, but I think very similar aims. I'm happy to work completely in the open. I'm happy to share and train other people. We're working towards the same thing. In a, in a way, yeah. In a way, we are doing the same. I'm, I'm hoping to, to, to talk to um, later on with uh, Dario Taraborelli. Uh, he has some ideas on, um, on how to develop these uh, the, um, communities of, of editors uh, around certain topics. And, and this shows 
how colorful the, this whole conference is and, and how many different sides of the, the certain problems are discussed. And uh, I cannot say how much I appreciate that, uh, that uh, the effort put in it and, and how well it's, it's played out. Well, thanks very much. And I hope it's just a start. I hope, I mean, science is such a broad area, like I say, there's different areas of science, I mean, scientific research and publication, and I hope it will focus down, and I hope it will fill an auditorium for people talking about Wikipedia and health. Yeah. And then we can sort out the science and the pseudoscience, um, but it could be Wikipedia and physical science, or Wikipedia and social science. Those things will come over the years, and when he designed the web, Tim Berners-Lee said, that there will be an encyclopedia. An encyclopedia will be made by scholarly societies and everyone else, and it will organise all knowledge. And this is ten years before Wikipedia, he saw this was going to happen. And that's eventually what has to happen, that, that we've got to work together to build this thing that we all use. But I, I think we're getting there. And it's hap it is happening, yeah, and, but we need these, these kind of conferences to, to lay out the, the, the path yeah. of, of that. People uh, have got to get in the room together, yeah. rather than the sort of the hateful <laughs> interaction online. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for your time. Thanks for running this conference uh, uh, very smoothly. Thanks very much again, Martin. Potter. Thanks very much, Andras. Well, this was our uh, second interview, and now, Pontus, are you going to tell us who's been really wrong lately in Europe? Well, today's really wrong price goes to the Norwegian government. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this news was also covered on the very excellent Norwegian podcast called Saltklipa, which I do recommend. But uh, for our non-Scandinavian-speaking listeners, here is what it's all about. The Norwegian government wants to fight climate change by planting lots of trees to absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. And uh, that sounds like a great idea, right? Yeah. I mean, well, that's from what we learned in school. Yeah, that, it sounds like a good idea. So they yeah. want they want to plant between 50 and 100 square kilometers with fir trees. But there are several problems with this approach. Uh, first of all, it's being criticized for changing and damaging the traditional landscape in, in Norway. Uh, and also, it will cost about... 200 million euro the scheme that they have but that from a scientific point of view there are other concerns the whole exercise of preparing the land would mean releasing a lot of co2 as part of planting the trees so critics are estimating that it would take about 40 to 50 years just to break even from a co2 point of view after planting the trees so, oh, fascinating. Yeah, with those huge trucks. And, exactly. And it's not. It, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But guys, do you know why it's so fascinating? Because I went on a little tour a couple of days ago, um, and we have explored a Deptford Creek. It's just a small river that runs by our apartment, mm -hmm. and because it um, uh, drains twice a day, you can actually walk on the bottom of that river. And they do like little excursions. And what they told us about that river and little ecosystem of it mm. is that um, a few years ago, there was a great initiative to clean it up because lots of people would dump rubbish and stuff like this. And what they found that it was full of shopping trolleys, you know, the big, bulky, you know, shopping trolleys. Yeah. 
<laughs> so the council, the local council, got some volunteers together and they got rid of those shopping trolleys. But before they did, um, the um, somebody measured how many uh, young fish were in the creek at the time. And then they cleaned the river up. They got rid of, like, I don't know, 400 shopping trolleys, thinking, yay, job well done. And they measured the population of young fish afterwards, and it halved. And the thing was that these shopping trolleys served as the house and the refuge for, from no various... No way to hide. Yeah, various things from them. And it was such an amazing <laughs> thing yeah. to realize that actually, by cleaning it up, in inverted commas, we can actually hurt the nature because the nature can use our rubbish to its advantage. And it was such a great perspective for me to see. And it kind of made me stop and think of what we are um, d- doing and, and people should mm. because we think it's a good thing and we, we know it's a good thing, but it could be a good thing, but nobody knows of the consequences. Well, ecological systems are like that. It's, mm. it's, it's an interconnected web of things. Mm. Um, so but, so what was, what was the conclusion? Oh, well... So there, there is another thing that's even more interesting if you look at it scientifically about this, uh, this scheme. Do you know uh, what the albedo effect is? Yeah. Andras knows. No. So Andras. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's the re- reflectability of the surface. Exactly. So, yeah. So, so if you have light areas, it reflects heat, and if you have dark areas, it absorbs heat. So, so the point of getting CO2 out of the atmosphere is, of course, to reduce the, the global warming. But as you uh, might know, fir trees are very dark and they will, according to the critics, absorb so much heat that this would balance the whole effect of reducing the CO2. So by trying to absorb the CO2 to reduce global warming, you you create this very dark mass which will contribute to to global warming so the net effect will be be zero Hmm. but of course there's one major uh, proponent of uh, going forward with this initiative and who can that be Mm. no it's the norwegian (laughs) forest owners association because because they will they will get trees planted for free no it, it i think it's a typical example of that science is hard and it's not always as obvious as you think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I wonder how many experts they consulted. Yeah. Before before bringing uh, coming up with this idea. Mm. Yeah, you know, well. you, you don't know, you don't know. So by failing to understand that science is always a little bit more complicated than you think, the Norwegian government got it really wrong. I think. It's about time we wrap up the show and there is no better way to do this than with a great quote. What do you have for us, Yelena? Yes, so I have got um, a quote from Marie Curie, who was a uh, French scientist. Uh, the quote is, I think, very relevant to today's podcast. Um, it goes like this. Humanity needs practical men who get the most out of their work and without forgetting the general good, safeguard their own interests. But humanity also needs dreamers for whom the d- 
disinterested development of an enterprise is so captivating that it becomes impossible for them to devote their care to their own material profit. Without doubt, these dreamers do not deserve wealth because they do not desire it. Even so, a well-organized society should assure to such workers the efficient means of accomplishing their task in life freed from material care and freely concentrated to research. Marie Curie. So, it's all for scientists. It's great to have scientists. Let's support them. Let's provide them with environment to work and, uh, yeah, create more good for humanity. I like this. I, I like it too. It's uh, it's poetic, you know. It, science isn't always about hard facts. It's also about dreaming, about finding the, the brighter future, a solution to a problem, and then you go about the... That's right, yeah. yeah. And I, I love how she talks about, obviously, dreamers are the scientists, and, and how she lo talks about yeah. them as being dreamers, and it's a lovely way. So. Yeah. Mm. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. This has been so much fun again. Thank you, Yelena. Thank you, Pontus. Thank you Thank very you. much. And goodbye. Bye. Bye. You told me that aliens really exist. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time. But until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Start again. <laughs> You're listening. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, what is wrong? Oh, it's got my fever. It's going to be a long Laughing night. Fever. Okay. I'll, I'll okay. be quiet. It's probably uh, more like Hector's. Yeah, maybe. Who is Hector? <gasps> he was a good old man. <laughs> Hector. I don't know a Hector when I see one. I'll just cut all of that out and I'll leave the, the square kilometers because that's, that's very scientific. John, uh, the Trump person? The, the Trump, Trump person? person? I'm sure. <laughs> Donald Absolutely. Trump probably doesn't even know where Norway is, to be fair. Okay. This has been your ESP... Sp fuck. <laughs> the ESP fuck? Now you've been fucked by Start the ESP again. again.